Well, Art's right. We're talking of one of the really old hymns, some 500 years old. Martin Luther wrote it in 1527. Luther was a man who knew what combat was all about. I mean, spiritual combat, because he was living in a tumultuous age, so much controversy within the church. And in that day, if it was in the church, it was in the whole society because church and state were intermingled tightly. And Luther was a monk who was also a college professor, and he began to study the scriptures intensely, first Psalms, then Paul's letters, especially to the Galatians and then the Romans. And in studying those letters, he began to see things he hadn't seen before and understand the gospel in a way he had not understood it before. He saw how the church had compromised that gospel in countless ways. And he recognized the corruptions in the church were leading people astray. And not only that, not only that, but changing the culture in ways that were turning people away from God. And so he spoke up against it. He, he preached a message against it. He was called to account by church authorities and secular authorities who didn't much like what he had to say because he was stirring the pot. He was disturbing the status quo. So they called him to the city of Worms. And there he was supposed to, he thought, enter into a dialogue about the things he had discovered in Scripture. But when he got there, he found out there was to be no dialogue. He was being called upon to recant. When he enters into the room, there in front is a stack of books and writings. They're his books, his writings. And the authorities that were there, both clerical and secular, demanded that he recant what he had taught, that he recant the things that went against the teaching of the church. Well, Luther was surprised. He was overwhelmed by the moment. He begged to have a night to reflect and to think. And no doubt, no doubt they thought that when he had time to think it through, this monk that they could squash in a moment, he'll come to his senses and he'll recant. He spent a sleepless night an anxious night. He was sick that whole evening. And when he came back into the room and all the authorities were lined up before him and once again they called upon him to recant, he said he would not. He could not. He said, my, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot recant. How could he recant? And, and cast off his faithfulness to God. He had pledged his life to God, and the Word of God ruled his life. I cannot, I will not recant. For me to do so would not be right, nor would it be safe. That is to sin against my conscience. I cannot do it. So I will not recant. I can do no other, he said. And in those immortal words, those famous words, he said, here I stand. God help me. Well, one account says that all the common people who had gathered outside and were listening in through the windows and, and trying to get a sense of what was happening inside, when he stood against all the powers, they let out a cheer. Here is this man of courage who will not bend. 
He will stand, he said, and he did stand. From there, the Reformation begins to spread like fire. The gospel is being recovered. It's a threat to people in power, but the gospel is being recovered. But oh, it it didn't go smoothly. There was lots of fighting. There was lots of opposition. Luther was, in fact, from that date, 1521, from that date, he was a fugitive from justice. At any moment, he knew he could be arrested, thrown in prison, and more to the point, he would be put to death. Others who had dared to speak against the authorities, the clerical authorities, had been put to death. One man from Bohemia named John Hus, not that many years before, had been put to death. So the danger was real, and Luther knew the danger was real. But his conscience was captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. So the Reformation goes from strength to strength, and people are turning to the gospel, but the opposition begins to rise again. There's controversy everywhere. Luther's being attacked, threatened, and attacked verbally, slandered, and in some cases not. You see, Luther was a man of gigantic virtues. He was also a man of gigantic flaws, and people latched on to those flaws, and they took him to task for them. It was a difficult time. But over years, the battle raged. And in 1527, he felt like he had had enough. His health was bad. He always struggled with his health. Many people thought it was from his days living as a Franciscan monk. So much fasting, it broke down his body. But his health was bad. He was in constant pain. Luther always struggled with bouts of depression, and he was depressed. The plague had come to Wittenberg, and people were dying on every side. Luther himself refused to leave the city. He was a pastor. He needed to care for his people. In fact, he turned his home into a hospital where they tended to the sick, knowing at any time he could lose his own life. Not only did he have to worry about the authorities who might arrest him at any time, he had to worry about his supporters, some of whom became fanatics. They thought they were, they were standing with Luther, but what they were doing was going way overboard and, and just committing themselves to outlandish things in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Luther in 1527 was a burdened man, almost a broken man. It was one thing to stand before the authorities with people listening in and in that dramatic moment to say, I will not bend, I will not cave, here I stand. It's another thing when life day after day is really tough and the pressure builds and you've got enemies on every side and your friends are not very good friends, then it's hard to stand. It was in 1527 when all this was pouring down upon him that inspired by Psalm 46 that Martin Luther wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. A helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. When he talks about let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. He wasn't just spouting poetry. He was having to lay it all out 
surrender it up, and even potentially yield his life to follow Jesus Christ and to be faithful. And so this hymn, this 500-year-old hymn, all the more striking because it is 500 years old, because it tells us that the day in which we stand today is not all that unusual, this hymn was a declaration of faithfulness to God and a defiance to the devil. And though it was inspired by Psalm 46, it reminds me, surely you as well, it reminds me so much of what we read last week, Ephesians chapter 6, which I want to read again this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, Paul talks about spiritual warfare. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I, may, I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul was preaching throughout the Mediterranean world, and, and he faced persecution on every side. He had false friends. He had overt enemies. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned and left for dead. Paul knew all about persecution, and he also knew that there is a spiritual root to persecution that there are principalities and powers at work shaping people's beliefs, their value system, their desires, the stories they tell themselves, shaping all those aspects of the inner life that give rise to behaviors and words. And Paul sees all of that and he speaks of it as something we must battle in the spirit. And he says, you've got to be ready to battle. You've got to be strong in the Lord and put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you can take your stand. And isn't that what we need to hear today? Don't we live in an evil day? I don't mean all evil as if, as if this isn't still God's world. Of course, it's God's world. And we delight in the gifts that God gives. We're grateful for those. Nevertheless, you cannot deny that we see an upsurge in assertiveness, an assertiveness against the ways of God and the truth of God. It's right out in the open. It's, 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 
sometimes intentionally blasphemous, but it is always implicitly anti-Christ because there is a whole value system that is not just one or two or even many individuals, but it's embedded in, in our, our social structures, our institutions. It's embedded in our large media corporations. It's embedded in other corporations and in government and in universities. It shapes the atmosphere in which people live and thereby shapes their spiritual formation and creates a way of life that turns people away from God instead of to God. We see that as Christians. It's not as if the United States was ever a Christian nation. I mean, it's a nation with a lot of Christians in it, but it wasn't a Christian nation. The United States is not a church or a church substitute. I'm not saying that. Nevertheless, there is certainly a shift in fundamental assumptions it may have been a superficial religiosity that was at work in previous generations, but it was still a religiosity and there was some overlap with biblical norms, not so much anymore. And as I say, it's assertive, I would say even aggressive, because it doesn't just say, I want the freedom to step away from all of that Christian stuff, but it also says, you don't have the right to bring your Christianity to the public realm. And you need to be silent, and you need to get with the program. There's a pressure being brought to bear. And so there are Christians who, who don't even wait to be canceled. They cancel themselves. They censor themselves. They hold back. And privately, they may hold to their old faith, but, but not publicly. And for many, it's not even privately because, well, you know, they just want to go along and get along. And so it's so easy to just yield to that pressure, to just adopt the beliefs, the values, the stories of the world. And so, yes, it is an evil day. And in a day like that, we as Christians need to find strength in the Lord and stand. Luther stood, and we must stand, taking on the whole armor of God. And then Paul says, praying as well. This is a spiritual battle. So last week I made the point, <laughs> if we're going to engage in spiritual battle, that means, number one, we don't hate. Nobody's our enemy. Even if in some sense a person might be our enemy, really they're not our enemy. We're, our enemy's not flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle we're in, so we don't want to hate anyone. We can't hate someone without having forgotten that Jesus Christ died for them, so we don't hate anybody. And we also don't fret because we know that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord today, and he's going to be Lord in the end, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we don't fret. We don't think, oh, no, everything's going to collapse. If you're tempted toward that, you need to repent of it now. Jesus Christ is Lord, and if you're a believer, you need to hold to that. That's just, that's the way it is, so we don't fret. But we also don't yield. We do not yield. We stand. It's very interesting because the picture Paul gives is not of an army moving in and just taking, taking territory. There's nothing here of taking back America for God kind of stuff. There's none of that here. 
That's not what's going on. This isn't about America. This isn't about the secular world. This is about the kingdom of God. And he's talking about Christians not going and aggressively attacking anyone. Rather, Christians who have been who have been saved by Christ, are faithful to Christ, and they stand in their faith even when attacked, even when pressured, even when efforts are made to push them off the ground on which they stand. You see that when you read this because it's all about taking your stand. And so that's what we need to do. As I said last week, there are certainly times when Christians, individuals, will get involved in the public realm, whether it's in politics, whether it's in government, you know, whether it's, it's in universities, whatever. We, we need as citizens to play a role there. But our real battle is spiritual, and the real issue has to be engaged there, and that's what Paul does in this passage. Now, what I want to focus on, though, is not the armor per se, but I want to begin at the end on what Paul says about prayer. And I want you to show how, I want to show you how this is central to what Paul is trying to say when he talks about this spiritual battle. When you read this text in English, it's often divided up, depending on your translations, divided up in different sentences. But actually, the Greek, it's just one long statement. And it's structured by participles. I'll show you what that is if you go ahead and put up this passage. This is me just, this is, this is a, a, pretty literal, not very elegant translation that I made to try to show you the structure of the passage. I actually omitted many phrases so that it wouldn't, it wouldn't distract from the basic structure. But I want you to see how prayer fits in here. Paul says, stand therefore, then the first participle in italics, having fastened on the belt of truth. How do you stand? Well, fastened on the belt of truth. Truth is part of the armor. And having put on, second participle, the breastplate of righteousness. And having put on as shoes the gospel of peace. And taking up, another participle, the shield of faith. Then there's an imperative. Having done all those things, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then he says, another participle, praying at all times in the spirit. And then he says, and, another participle, keeping alert. This is all one long statement. I'm not saying that for Paul, prayer is part of the armor. The armor is an image he's using to try to talk about things like truth and righteousness and gospel and faith and, and the word of God. That's, that's an image that he's using. Prayer is not that, but prayer is part of what he's talking about in this spiritual battle. In other words, why are you putting on the armor? You need to be praying, praying with all prayer on all occasions in the spirit and pray for all Christians, he says. And while you're at it, pray for me that I will have the boldness to preach fearlessly. He asks that twice, or he mentions fearlessly twice. Pray that I will speak fearlessly. He wants to speak fearlessly as he ought. He has to ask for prayers because that's hard to do when speaking can put you at risk. And it always put Paul at risk. It's hard to do for us when it can put us at risk. But as we put on this armor, praying and keeping alert. The two go together. Watchful prayer. Jesus said, watch and pray to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray. What are you watching for? 
you are watching for spiritual battles into which you will inject yourself, into which you will enter through prayer. See, many of us are way too naive. There are spiritual battles that go on with our children. Those of us who have children, our children can be engaged in a spiritual battle and we don't even pay attention. We don't even notice it. We're ready to, we're ready to complain about school curriculum, but we're not, we're not even plugged into our children well enough to see that they're facing a spiritual battle. So we need to watch We need to watch ourselves, the rest of our family, our friends, coworkers. We need to be aware of what's happening around us with eyes spiritualized as Christians to recognize there's a battle going on. And then we engage in that battle through prayer on all occasions, all kinds of prayer in the spirit for all people. But Paul's thinking particularly here about Christians because Christians are the ones who are under assault who have to stand. So we need to pray for one another. My point here is really very simple, that spiritual warfare is inseparable from prayer and intercessory prayer, praying for one another, engaging in prayer. If we don't pray, we are not engaged in warfare. Firing off a Facebook post is not the equivalent of spiritual warfare. We have to pray, intercede, So Elijah was a prophet who faced an evil day. In Israel, Ahab was king, and he married a Phoenician princess named Jezebel, who was a worshiper of Baal, as the people in Phoenicia were. She brought in priests of Baal into Israel and supported them and the worship of Baal with state resources. It looked as if the worship of Baal was going to sweep over Israel and take over. It was a dark day. And Elijah, whose name means, my God is Yahweh, Elijah shows up as a prophet. He is so discouraged at one point because he says, I'm the only one who's following God. He wasn't, but that's how he felt. Maybe you felt like that before. But things were dark He took a stand. God turned things for his people. It was a remarkable reformation that took place. It was a remarkable movement of God. How did it happen? Was it through his activism? (laughs) No, you you didn't do activism in that culture at that time. The king would just take your head off. You didn't do activism. Was it through his preaching? Well, yes, but... But what's interesting is when James talks about Elijah, he doesn't focus on the preaching. You know what he talks about? Talks about prayer. He says, you know what? Elijah is flesh and blood, just like all of us. But when he prayed, the heavens were shut. In other words, he had prayed that God would not send rain as as a warning to Israel. And no rain came. He said, Elijah's just like us. But when he prayed... The heavens were shut. We too can pray, James is saying. And he encourages the Christians by saying, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We always want to rush to get political or to fight and, and, and you know, get in the public realm and make something happen, which, again, I am not against us acting directly in the public realm. I'm for that. 
But we're so anxious to do that because we think that's how you really make something happen. But you know what? There has been an upsurge in political and social activism among conservative evangelicals since the 1970s. There was a huge surge and into the 80s. I mean, when we talk about people being active in the faith, folks are pretty active. How's that worked for us? Where are we now? See, the problem is, yes, we need to do those things, and it is important. Curriculum matter, laws matter, all that. I'm not, I am not saying that's not important, but there's a spiritual component that underneath all these things that we see that feeds it, that gives rise to it, that can only be addressed through spiritual means, through the armor of God that we'll talk about in subsequent weeks, and through prayer. Apart from prayer, we're not engaging in spiritual warfare. So every parent here, you should be praying, earnestly praying for your children. You should be, you should be aware of what's going on in their life. You should be praying for them. If you're not praying for them, you're not fighting for them. You're not fighting for them. You should be praying for the believers you know when they're facing tests and trials, that God would keep them strong. We should be praying for everyone, but Paul focuses in on, on Christians. He even says, while you're at it, pray for me that I'll be bold. You know what? I wouldn't mind if you prayed for me. And, and you ought to pray for others who are in the ministry, that the ministry might go forward, that people might preach the gospel and preach it truly, because in some cases, it's easier to cave. This is a day when Christians must not cave. Don't hate, don't fret, but also don't yield. Having done all to stand, we need to stand. And if we pray, the prayers of God's people are powerful and effective. And they change things because God is powerful. He invites us to have a role in what he does. Why are things contingent on prayer? I don't know why. Why, why. why is feeding the hungry contingent on us going and offering food? Why, why is that the case? I don't know why God does it that way, but he makes us mutually dependent on one another. Maybe it builds community. I don't know. But God also makes us dependent on prayer. We have to call on him. Pray. Then you're entering into battle. Then you'll make a difference. We're all called to that. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power that we have through Jesus Christ, the power that raised him from the dead, that, is, that enthroned him on high is the same power that's at work in us. You, Lord Jesus, exalted above every principality and power, we know that you dwell in us by your Spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would stir us up. Let us be people of prayer, watchful, aware, battling in prayer for our loved ones, battling in prayer that, that your, your cause might prevail. Lord, we ask you to forgive us for our prayerlessness and move us to something deeper and better. 
And Lord, may you, for each one here who, who doesn't know you or, or wonders if, if you've truly saved them, may you reach out to them now as they lift their heart to you in prayer. May you answer their prayer in power. May you fill them with your Holy Spirit. May you, may you pour out your grace and make them to know that you are their God. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? I'm just going to close the service, okay? I've, I've, I've preached too long in both services. That's bad, because you repent in the first one, then you sin again in the second one. <laughs> I'm joking about it, but it really is, it's, it's, it's not good. But the message is so important, and I want to ask you to take it to heart. I want to, I'm asking you to commit yourself to be a spiritual warrior, to recognize the nature of the battle, to recognize the nature. We're going to get into things like truth and the Word of God and faith and all those things, part of this armor, but, but taking on the armor has to be accompanied by praying and keeping watch. That's what Paul's saying in that passage. It's, it's inseparable from prayer. Apart from prayer, we have no power, and there'll be no victory, and your family will not be blessed as it could be blessed. And so we must pray, asking God, knowing that God will not fail us. Amen. Lord, may your blessing be on everyone here. May your grace fill each life. May you draw us, Lord, into a deeper intimacy with you. May you give us power through prayer. May your cause prevail. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.